Good morning. It is really cool to have Mr. Dunham here today. He was on my ordination council. Some, I was 97, whatever, do the math. So um, welcome, brother, all the way from Florida. He is 99 years old and uh, a gracious servant of the Lord and uh, still serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. And uh, amen. That's awesome. So you strive to be like that. And, uh, and I mean that. Uh, I want to say before we talk this morning, um, continue talking about fellowship. Uh, just say to you, continue in the grace of God. It has been awesome this week to watch priests of God made so by the power of the gospel and the indwelling Holy Spirit to minister to the body like you have this week. Um, it's been awesome. Awesome. As uh, Angela and Darnell lost their baby this week, and this afternoon we'll have that funeral, uh, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a pastor who was mobilizing. It was the body. That's the way it's supposed to work. I just want to say to you, continue to minister in the grace of God as you have. That's been stinking awesome to watch. Amen? Isn't that cool? You're priests of God. Fellow heirs in the gospel. Isn't that great? And so as Holy Spirit has mobilized you this week to serve the body, it, I just, it has been overwhelming in some degree to watch. And as my family's been sick with the stuff, my wife's still in bed with a fever today. Uh, you guys have ministered to us too. And so just cool to watch stuff happening in the body. Um, so amen. Isn't that awesome? Let's give thanks and then ask the Lord to, uh, to help us uh, this morning as we take a look at the danger to that kind of fellowship, which is sin. Father, this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, by the Holy Spirit's convicting power, by His counseling and His teaching and His reminding, we pray now that You would lay bare the hearts of your people. And that you would convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I ask this morning that the evil one's deception would be driven far away. I ask, Father, that there would be no influence of the evil one that would be permitted. But that there would be the freedom present. For Holy Spirit to do His work today. And laying hearts bare for the purpose of fellowship and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That kind of service that you have done this week. Has a killer. It has a cancer. It has something that can obliterate it. Just like that. And it's sin. Sin is the destroyer of fellowship. We read in Genesis chapter 3 where this comes from. If you wouldn't mind, just go there with me. Genesis chapter 3. And I just I want you to know that it is absolutely, utterly impossible to do today everything we need to do in dealing with sin and rebellion 
and how it kills fellowship. And, and if you pulled the notes down off the blog, I probably I may skip through a lot of things um, just to get done in time. Um, so I'm just going to try to follow the Spirit's leadership in that. And, and so I, I do want to read uh, for just a few moments in Genesis chapter 3. So if you're there, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The rebellion has already taken place in the heavenlies. The rebellion has already happened. And just around the corner, we see in the foreshadowing of verse 1, the devastation that is about to be wrought on our parents. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. A misunderstanding and a misquoting of what God has said. A misapplication of what God has said. Brought about the fall. Genesis 3, and it still does the same thing today. You can couch sin in spiritual terms and still pillage your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can couch love. You can make it look pretty and put a Christian t-shirt on it. But if its heart is rebellion, it's rebellion no matter how pretty it looks. Okay? Misquoting, misapplication of what God has said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam standing there. It's not as though he's absent. He's silent, passively watching Satan lie to his wife. And she buys it. He lets her and he participates in following. Come to elementary school with me at some point in time and watch these precious elementary school children that I work with on a daily basis. Live that out. It's almost funny. Like when I'm doing observations of people in my department, I'll go in and watch the teacher do this marvelous job. And I'm not even lying. Like I almost took a picture of it this week. As the little girls were up at the front eager to deal with the stuff and the little dudes were sitting at the back sucking on their thumbs doing everything but what they're supposed to be doing. And I thought, Genesis 3. The girls paying attention. And thank God the teacher's... Telling the truth, right? And they're up there and they're engaged. And where is the dude? I'm not even lying. Living Genesis 3 out, man. It's crazy. So there he is doing nothing, watching the wife set the pace. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a 
devastating statement that now face-to-face relationship with the Son of God is being ran from. Fellowship has been severed. Relationship with God has been destroyed. Fellowship is now broken. And they're running from face-to-face fellowship with the Son of God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, here's a beautiful gospel picture, Man in his sinful state is separated and running from God, but God in the gospel comes and calls to him and says to him, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate, passing the buck. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you, that is Satan, shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel, the first preaching of the gospel. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the evil one. Jesus comes and he crushes the work of the evil one in his death, burial, and resurrection. He is wounded, but he rises to life and defeats death. Verse 16, the woman said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's not a desire for relationship with sexually or any other way. It is the same word used in chapter 4, verse 7, regarding sin crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, meaning your desire will be now for the headship of your husband to rule and set the pace. It's a fallen tendency. It's not good. Okay? And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord kills in order to cover their shame. Lord, put the Son of God on the cross and killed Him that our shame may be covered. Just examples of how the gospel is explicit all through the text of Scripture. Okay? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This morning we talk about sin as the danger, the cancer, the killer of fellowship. We're going to talk about sin, not sins. This is why we read Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 is sin that is the root of all sins. So we're going to deal with sin 
that rebellious fallen nature we possess from the fall rather than individual sins because that can be a deadly thing. Number one, it may look like I'm picking on people who are wrestling through certain issues and that is certainly not my goal. Because every single one of us in this room are sinners by choice and by nature. And apart from the glorious work of the gospel, we are devastated and we are fallen. And so I have besetting issues just like you do. But the root of those sins is the false sin, the rebellion by our parents in the garden that is still present in our flesh. Although if you have believed the gospel, you've been given a new heart. You've been given a new heart, the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, a new set of desires. And Paul talks about those new desires in Romans 7, waging war with the flesh and its sinful desires. But there's a conflict in you constantly, a desire to want to do right and follow the Lord. But at the same time, this stubborn flesh that's fallen and decaying and is going to die rebels and fights against us. So there's war going on. That's indication, number one, that you're a follower of Jesus. If there's a war going on in you for righteousness, but it being impeded, that's because that's what happens to Christians. If there's, if there's no fight for righteousness, there's no salvation. And when we get to 1 John chapter 3, we'll deal with that in a little more detail. So we're not talking about sins. We're talking about sin, the fallen nature. The nature left in our fallen flesh that is at war with that transformed heart. The nature that when given into can manifest itself in a multitude of indigenous sins. This is why it, it just never does good to compare sins, right? Because you have an indigenous nature, a hardwiring about you, and the sinful nature that we have in our flesh works against us and produces all kinds of issues that are rebellious in nature and all come back to the issue of sin, the root issue. Which is why when you're dealing with folks in, in, in your groups and small group life together, it's rarely the individual sins that's the problem. It's the fallen nature that has to be addressed. It's a gospel issue. It's an unbelief in the power of the gospel to transform ultimately. If dudes have an issue with the internet, it's not the internet. It's the fact that they are idolatrous at their core and love something else other than Jesus and the gospel needs to transform their heart. That's the root issue. Not, ooh, you need accountability issues and software. Yeah, maybe. But primarily, where are you not believing the gospel? Why isn't Jesus enough for you? So we're dealing with sin, not sins, okay? So point number one, the devastation of sin is seen in the fall. The devastation of fall was so far sweeping that even after salvation, our flesh is tainted with the effects of the fall. And that's only going to get repaired in the resurrection from the dead as Christ returns. Unless we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we're all going to die. That funeral that happens this afternoon is just... It, I'm going to have one too. Unless the Lord completes the great commission before I pass, I'm going to pass. And somebody will preach my funeral. And until that day comes, I'm going to wrestle with a tainted flesh that I'm longing to be repaired. 
Spurgeon says it like this, As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. This is why you cannot take comfort in your supposed sinless state for two weeks. I've avoided that sin for two weeks. And you grunt harder and you try to make it three weeks. And then pride swells up and, wow, I'm really righteous. And the next thing you know, without even thinking about it, you sin and you're like, ah! Because every atom of your nature is broken. And you're only preserved through the glorious work of Jesus in your place for your sin. So that our righteousness is held in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. So that when we sin, we don't despair. We just repent. Because we come and say, Jesus, you've got me. You still love me. And so I'm, I'm going to help me not do that. Because every bent of our flesh is against the Spirit. We've got to make sure we don't let Christian cliches easily dismiss the devastation of sin. Be wary of it if it's not written in the Bible. Give you an example. The cliche, I'm about to blow. I, I, I even hesitated even putting this in my notes because this may leave some of you devastated this morning. But if it devastates you, it'll be for your good. So the cliche, and because maybe there's some of you in here, you need to believe the gospel. There's a gospel issue this morning. And you truly need to believe the gospel, repent of your sin, and come to Jesus. And stop depending on your morality to save you. Because it won't. Being good enough is not going to get you there. You just have a really nice, well-decorated golf cart to hell. It'll look good. Smell good. And you're not going to make it. The cliche, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. This is a quote from D.A. Carson. In a little book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The cliche, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, is false on the face of it and should be abandoned. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone. And the reason Christians buy this stuff is because they don't read their Bibles. And when they do, you find that the Bible contradicts your cliches. And then you try to justify your cliche with the Bible, bend the Bible to make it say things it doesn't say. And the next thing you know, you've got an idol. I mean, this is, this is Aaron, Deuteronomy 32. Moses is on the mountain, right, getting, getting the Ten Commandments. And he comes down. The Lord says, dude, they've lost their minds. Jolly paraphrase. And he's coming down the mountain. And, and what has Aaron done? Aaron has, they've said, Mo, Moses is gone. I don't know where he is. You make us gods. So he says, bring me all your gold. And so they bring him all the gold. And he fashions. The Bible's clear. Aaron makes idols. And they're worshiping the Lord through these idols. And Moses comes down. He's hacked off, throws the law down, breaks it all up. And Aaron's excuse is the butt passing of, of all of life. Moses, I don't know what happened. They were jacked up. You were gone. They brought their gold. I threw it into the fire and out walked these calves. It's actually kind of funny. If it wasn't so sad, it is funny. Right? He, you, you just you bend it. And you make it say things it doesn't say. You pass the buck and you adopt the cliche. And the next thing you know, you've got an idol. 
Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we're told that God hates the sinner and his wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on the sin and on the sinner. Sin is not something to be cliched about. It's devastating. I want you to, the reason I read that for you is because I want you to hear and understand sin is devastating. It's not to be toyed with or cliched about. It is the reason our flesh is tainted and works against us. It's the reason we have a funeral this afternoon. It's the reason there is rape and pillage and murder. It's the reason there's a global trafficking issue in children and teenagers. Sin is devastating and it is not to be cliched about. As though God's passive about it. He's so serious about it that in order to pay for it, the second person of the Trinity comes and takes on flesh and dies under the wrath of the Father in the place of all those who would repent and believe. Sin is so devastating that every time, we looked at this last week, we were talking about the Lord's Supper, that God wants us to hate sin because every time we read in the law there's sin, something has to die. And the job of a Levite was a bloody, nasty mess. And so that every time they killed an animal, they were to learn to hate sin. So don't, because because we we don't have a a picture of Christ's death in our place for our sin in an audiovisual file, don't lose the image of the Old Testament where there's constant bleeding on behalf of sin because Jesus' death was a bloody, gory mess. That's how much sin devastates. Does that make sense? It's horrid. And it's not to be toyed with. It's not to be played around with. It's not to have a Christian t-shirt put on it. It's not to be couched in spiritual terms. It's not to be covered up as though it's okay. It's devastating. It broke fellowship with God and man. And that being what, what fellowship is built upon. Like our fellowship with each other, this goes all the way back to the first couple of talks when we start talking about fellowship, is built on fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that's broken, this has no shot. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before this starts looking like that when this is broken because of the devastation of the fall. Sin is not to be toyed with. It's devastating. So what is sin? Good question. Another little quote here. In my footnotes, I'm not going to take time to read you my footnote. There in the the notes, you can look at them. The heart of all evil is idolatry itself. Ultimately, the fall, Genesis 3, this is an idolatry issue. We are our own gods. We make our way. We're like God, knowing good and evil. We will make our own decisions. We're the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. We do our own thing. That's the essence of sin. It's the degodding of God. It's the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you do not see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own god. Small wonder that the sin most frequently said to arouse God's wrath is not murder, say, or pillage. or If you know D.A. Carson, never heard him talk, this sounds like him. Because when he says pillage, like nobody still says that, but he still does. Which is not murder, say, or pillage, or any other horizontal barbarism, but idolatry, that which dethrones God. That is also why in every sin, 
It is God who is the most offended party. As David himself well understood in Psalm 51.4, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, put her husband on the front line to have him murdered. And he comes and he pens Psalm 51 as part of his repentance. And David didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. He said, I sinned against you. So when we sin against one another, it's not against each other. Ultimately, it's against God. And I'm my own idol. I'm going my own way, doing my own thing. Forget you. Against you, you only have I sinned. It's the de-godding of God. When we crucify each other outside of each other's absence, no matter how innocent we couch it, It is saying that I don't trust God, I trust me, and therefore I will take the reins of deity and rule my ends for myself. And if that caused the fall in Genesis 3, think of what it does in the fellowship. What are some images, number three, that the Bible uses to explain sin that produces myriads of indigenous sins? Well, here are some words the Bible uses. Rebellion. By the way, when Saul does his glorious thing, sinning against the Lord, and Samuel rebukes him, Samuel says something pretty amazing. He says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. To rebel against God is to divine demons. It's to play the role of a medium. It's kind of wicked, isn't it? Rebellion is as the sin of divination. To rebel against God is to divine demons. And that's weird in a naturalistic culture because that makes us uncomfortable, right? But the reality is there's a spiritual war around you. And what you're thinking right now is either controlled by your flesh, by Holy Spirit, or satanic hordes whose purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There's a war going on for your mind and your soul right now. Be aware. Be aware. Rebellion, folly, madness, treason, death, hatred, spiritual adultery, missing the mark, wandering from the path. Idolatry, insanity, irrationality, pride, selfishness, blindness, deafness, hard-heartedness, being, having a stiff neck, delusion, unreasonableness, and self-worship. Those are just some of the images the Scriptures use to describe sin. Well, number four, what does sin do? Sin breaks fellowship. In Genesis 3, we've already read sin breaks fellowship. It breaks fellowship with God. The Lord God comes walking in the garden in the cool day. And by the way, just from Trinitarian theology here, God walking in human form in flesh on the earth is none other than the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who's in the fiery furnace with the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the one who walks up to the tent of Abraham in Genesis 18 and has the conversation with, which by the way, I love how they portrayed that in the Bible series, whether you like it or don't like it, that's your issue, but... They portrayed him as he is walking in the flesh up to the tent of Abraham. Jesus coming, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do? They run and hide. Fellowship with God broken and destroyed. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It separates men from God salvifically. 
such that from the fall onward, every human being born is under the condemnation of Adam's sin. Thus, every single individual is separated from God apart from the grace of God. Sin separates and destroys salvifically. Sin also quenches the spirit when lived in after salvation. The glorious, beautiful news of the gospel is the Son of God has come, the offspring of the woman has come, and He has taken on flesh, and He has died in the place of sinners, and He has rose, He has risen for their salvation. He crushed the head of the evil one so that if you repent and believe, you are given the righteousness of Christ, and He takes all of your guilt. Glorious good news. But if you believe the gospel and you continue to walk in the flesh and not in the spirit, the spirit is quenched. Spirit is quieted. Sin breaks fellowship with each other. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 12 through the rest of the chapter, we see how the fellowship between husband and wife is broken because of the rebellion. And because fellowship is broken between husband and wife, now fellowship with each other is broken. So sin destroys fellowship with each other. Sin causes broken fellowship in the home. It causes broken fellowship between homes. When sin breaks fellowship, the unraveling of society is the obvious next phase of sin's destruction. Because what do we see in Genesis 4? Cain murdering Abel. Why do men murder men? Because of the rebellion. Because of the rebellion. Number five, sin breaks society. Genesis 4 through 11. Sin destroys fellowship in society. Cain kills Abel. There's increasing rebellion that brings God's judgment in the flood. At the Tower of Babel, the people continue to rebel against God and refuse to scatter and fill the earth and seek to make a name for themselves rather than highlight and make a name for the Lord. And so all of society is broken, so the Lord comes and in a gracious act, confuses their language, sends them over the face of the earth to cause them to obey as He told them to do. So sin begins to break society. The reason society is broken is a sin issue. It's a sin issue. It's a sin issue. Which if you have a friend that's in sin and dealing with sinful issues, you've got to get to the root of an unbelief in the gospel and submission to the triune God of the universe before you deal with the sins and the things on the outside. To just try to deal with a particular indigenous sin to an individual without dealing with an idolatrous sin issue at the heart is putting a band-aid on a broken leg. It won't work. It won't work. Society unravels because of sin. Sin breaks covenant and creates idols. The idolatrous living out of the people after all of this stuff, and I've already referenced Exodus already for you, and Aaron and the idolatry, sin ultimately is exaltation of oneself as sovereign and determiner of what is best. And a fellowship cannot be ruled by Trinity and by a bunch of little sovereigns who worship themselves. Number seven, sin results in uncleanness for sinner and the victim of one's sin. And sin affects subsequent generations. I have a multitude of passages here. You're just going to have to read over them because I don't have time to deal with them. But here's the deal. And you hear me say this times. You've heard me say this times in the past. Sin's never isolated to the sinner. If I sin, 
it doesn't just affect me. You can read these passages here. That it is the sinner and the person who's the object, whether directly or indirectly, is affected by my sin. Sin is more than just me. Sin didn't just affect the garden. It affected all of us. Still does to this day. So who am I to say that my sin won't affect you? What kind of idolatrous, sovereign statement is that? Sin is more than just the physical doing of things to each other. It's also atmospheric. You ever notice when someone's in sin in the room and you feel it? It's because sin is never isolated to the sinner. Sin also makes unclean the air and everything. It's the nature of it. Never isolated to the sinner. It's always a fellowship destroyer. It's always a fellowship destroyer. Color of carpet never divides churches. The idol worshiper who insists on having their way is the one who destroys churches. The color of the carpet is just a convenient excuse to cover up the idol of oneself. So, how do we stop sin, prevent sin from destroying fellowship? How do we do this? I'm going to give you some things this morning. We're going to take a look at some stuff to help us avoid this. To make sure that as we do life together under the Word, right? Life together under the Word. If you missed those first few talks, go back and listen to them. Life together under the Word. Common mission, common goal, common life. As we do life together under the Word. How do we make sure we do not let sin destroy? Number one, be in fellowship. Be in fellowship. This is good. Hear me. This is good. This is not church life. This is the equipping of the saint to leave and go be a priest of the gospel. And a minister of the gospel as salt and light out there. Hear that? This is good. This is not to be avoided. But this is not the essence of life together under the word. When we read in the New Testament about the churches. They were not large gatherings. The church at Corinth was a small gathering of believers in homes. Okay? The church at Rome, same thing. The church did not turn into large gatherings until after Constantine makes the church the official religion of the Roman Empire and abolishes the other idolatrous worship practices and the church then takes over the various places that were used to worship idols. In other words, the church was meeting in gatherings of small people doing life together under the word of the gospel. Which is why in the western context of doing church, we have to be careful not to let church become a place where people can hide. Because already, 
You can sneak in the back and sneak out and avoid life to gather under the word and appease your conscience for being here. And that's not good for you or us. You've got to be in fellowship. It's hard to sin against people you do life with and serve. Isn't it? Any of the guys I meet with on a regular basis, it would be hard for me to sin against them. A, they wouldn't let me get away with it. They'd put a boot in my rear end. Secondly, I don't want to. I love them. Do I still screw up? Yeah. Moment by moment, I'm good at sinning. Right? But when you're in fellowship, it's hard to sin against them, isn't it? Be in fellowship. Be in fellowship with one another. Because when we do sin in that type of environment, accountability takes place out of love. Do not isolate yourself from the fellowship. Number two, don't possess any rights. Don't impose your rights on people. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. James 4, 1 to 2 tells us, The reason you fight and quarrel is because you're an idolater. It's all about you. Don't possess any rights. Worldly passions producing quarreling and sinning against others. If I have no rights, then I seek to put a sword to my flesh and look over your sin against me. I don't seek to get even. I recognize that I too am a fool. And therefore I seek peace and pursue it. And I will not hurt you. Have no rights. The problem is we live in a country that pledges allegiance to a bill of rights as though we actually possess any. Think that through. I possess no rights if I belong to Christ. Number three, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, and I'm going to wrap up here. And, and in all honesty, number th- this, this last point of application deserves a lot more time than I'm going to give it. And maybe in this next year as we come back through, we're gonna do, we'll gonna we do some more in this. Um, we're still ha- we, I don't know if you've noticed, we haven't even got to 1 John. We're still introducing fellowship. And I told you because the next 10 years are vital. And it's vital that we get fellowship. It's not essential that we speed through. That's a load. What's essential is is that the Lord teaches us fellowship. Life together under the Word. And that we obey Him and His leading. We let Chief Shepherd Jesus counsel and teach so that we grow up into the head who is Christ. Number three, got to do fellowship Romans 12 style. I've been a couple years ago, we went through Romans 12 through the end of the book. 
passage, John, uh, Paul does this marvelous job of unpacking the gospel in 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And he comes to chapter 12 and tells them, Therefore, in view of all these glorious mercies in the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to the Lord. And he says, that is your spiritual worship. And the rest of the book of Romans is an unpacking of what worship in the church at Rome should look like. In other words, what does your fellowship, what does your worship life look like? And he starts by telling them, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If we're going to do fellowship right, our mind has to be changed. We can't be westernized, Americanized individuals seeking a product and have fellowship with one another. Because as long as you are just a product to me or I am a product to you, I can't love you and you can't love me because you're just going to try to get from me and get from me and get from me and I get from you and get from you and get from you. And what's going to happen is you abuse me and I abuse you. Does that make sense? If all you are is a product, if all I am is a product to be had, that is the epitome. That is the epitome of the fall. So our minds have to be transformed from a culture of individuals seeking to consume a product at the lowest possible price. And don't we do that? We come to God's house seeking a product. We want our style of music. We want the guy to entertain us well. And at the end of the day, nobody to hold us accountable for putting nothing in the plate. We're going to do fellowship in Rome, Georgia, right? It has to start with a mind shift. The Holy Spirit changing our thinking from a whatever it is to this, the manual. So our mind needs to be transformed. Well, what happens here? One of the first things that he says here to the church at Rome is in verse 3. Judge yourselves rightly. He says, for by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Judge yourself rightly. Think not yourself above anyone. Think not yourself below anyone. We are all priests of God in the gospel by which we serve each other as ministers of the gospel under the headship of Christ. Think not yourself below me, above me, me not above you, me not below you, but all of us under the chief shepherd Jesus, which mobilizes a body to serve. Hmm. I'm not going to say that. I'll stop there. It's one of the reasons I'm a Protestant. We're all priests. There's no one priest to God that we are mediated through. We're all priests. You have the same access to the Father that anybody else in the room has. Isn't that awesome? You need to ask your pastor if you can serve each other. Just do it. Because you can like you've been doing all week long, and it's beautiful. Do more. Keep loving each other like that. 
The Bible tells us love like that covers a multitude of sins. Judge yourself rightly. Don't be prideful, but don't be self-debasing either. Judge yourself rightly. Think not your way is the right way. Next, use your gifts. Verse 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace, the charis, the charismata, the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one, I'm sorry, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, one who exhorts in his exhortation, one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts with mercy, do with cheerfulness. Use your gifts. And just so you know, they're all in play. Obey. Use your gifts to minister to one another. Use your gifts. By the way, how do you know your gift? Not by taking a test. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us that those gifts are uncovered as you serve one another in the body. Your gifts, Holy Spirit gifts, become apparent as you do life together under the Word. They just are uncovered because He, some of them He may give in the moment. And that's the only time He gives it. It's when it's needed in the moment. And if you're serving and loving the body, you'll receive that gift for that person and they will be exalted. You will see God show amazing things. Your faith will grow. They will grow into Christ and all as well. If you isolate yourself from the body, don't be surprised. There's no giftedness being displayed because there's no need for it. Gifts are not for each. Like He doesn't give me a gift to teach so that I can sit in the room and study. Wow, I study. Not, so what? He, that is given for others. And my life is to be poured out for others that they may think rightly on God. Therefore, I'm told in Scripture, I will be judged more strictly for that. So I have to study, not for me, but so that He don't get me. Bad English, I know. Good theology, right? So, please, Lord, I hope that's right. I I don't want the Lord to come and say, you fool. So the gift is for you. You have gifts for me. And oh, how thankful I am over the past few months how the Lord has sent several of you to me with words to stand under things going on in my mind. And it was a word from the Lord that helped me stand. Don't stop doing that for each other. Right? Use your gift. I don't care what it looks like. Use it. Use it. But you've got to be in fellowship to use it. And you can't be in sin toward one another. Right? You can't serve people with a giftedness when you're isolated from and sinning against. Love. Verse 9 through 13, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Continue 
Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Love like that. Just like that. Do that. Do that. I'm not going to repeat it. You read it. Go do that. Go do that. Love. You know what's beautiful about love? Love is going to look different out of each indigenous individual. I've wrestled, and it was this week Jim Lanier helped, helped me get this. Like, I'm not an empathetic guy at all. And there are reasons historically. Some of you guys know my story. That was put to sleep in me as a child. And the Lord just hasn't. I'm, I try. I really do try. But I'm not like empathetic at all. But one of the ways I've discovered through the grace of the Lord to me through other humans is I love for you. Like this, this makes my day when you think rightly on the Lord. Like I can't tell you the joy that creates in my soul. When someone has a question about the Lord or they're instructed from the Word and their mind is set right on the Lord, that makes me like giddy, giggly, giddy, almost girly, giggly, giddy. Like I love for the people of God to think rightly on the Lord. I love for their minds to be in shape. And I love the people of God. God that way. And that's not less than empathy. It's just His wiring for me to love you that way. Some of you are empathetic by nature and you're not thinkers and that's okay. I need you to love me with empathy because there today is the uh, eighth anniversary of my father dying. Bloody, ugly day. It was not a pretty day. Ugly death at the hands of cancer. Eight years ago, so St. Patrick's Day is always weird for me. This time of year. I need empathy. I don't know how to give it, but I need it. You know? Does that make sense? Love each other. Love each other the way God's wired you. Bless those who deserve justice. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Sometimes people just deserve justice, don't they? Bless them. By the way, I'm not going to get justice from the Lord. The gospel has assured me of that. I'm going to get grace. I receive grace daily. I will never get justice because of the glorious work of Christ in my place for my sin. So therefore, we give blessing and grace. We minister as the need requires. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a time for weeping with people. There's a time for rejoicing with one another. Minister as the need requires. Keep peace. Verse 16 through 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Keep peace. Keep peace. It's better just to receive it and take it and keep peace than to create a mess. 
Finally, do good to all. Verse 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Contrary to maybe what you were taught growing up about that passage, that does not mean that you're going to hack them off and there's nothing they can do to you about it. Heaping burning coals on someone's head is a blessing. Here's why. You'll go home and cook dinner, or you'll go to a restaurant and eat dinner. Boy, that's a redneckness in me. Dinner is lunch where I come from, and dinner is supper, right? Those of you who are confused, fine. You don't need to know, but if you came from where I came from, you got it, right? So you'll go eat dinner somewhere, and by that I mean lunch, and somebody will have to use heat to cook your meal, right? Unless you go to Bluefin and, you know, you get the rainbow roll and it's all. But somebody had to use heat to cook the rice. So anyway, anyway so getting caught in the details. <laughs> get caught in the details. Um, back in the day, it's not like they just flipped the switch and electricity pulsed through and, or the gas line turned on gas and they cooked on the stove. You had to cook over a fire, right? To have fire for someone, to provide fire for someone is, is, is giving them a gift. It's a blessing. To give someone burning coals is to give them something by which they can cook, purify water. It's a blessing. In other words, be a blessing. If there's injustice, ask the Lord. By the way, He's good at fixing what we never can. He's a deliverer. And what it does is when we Leave it to the Lord and He sovereignly does the God things He does. It increases our faith because we asked Him for those things and we watched Him do them. And then secondly, they just get done because He's able to do them. And He's able to do them in a way that keeps peace. Whereas we would create havoc. Isn't that crazy? Fellowship, life together under the Word, right? Sin's a destroyer. So therefore, let us strive not to sin, but to worship the Lord in all ways. And serve one another in life together under the word like that. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to come and respond to the Lord in song. As we say, sing, right? Sing to the Lord. That is one of the ways we get to worship the Lord. Secondly. Maybe there's an opportunity of you to repent of sin. Maybe there is someone you need to repent. You need to go to them and you need to say, you know, I'm sorry. You don't even know it, but I have sinned against you. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I don't have to list sins is because Holy Spirit, Jesus said he is a convictor of sin. He has already done that work. I don't have to mention him. He's doing it right now. Obey him, right? Obey him. Just obey him. If someone needs encouraging and the Lord gives you their name and a word for them, would you go to them and speak it? Encourage them. If someone needs to be prayed for, would you go and pray for them? We'll be standing in the back. Some of us guys, some of your deacons, um, we'll be standing in the back and we'll be glad to pray for you. If you need us to pray for you, come. We'd love to pray for you. But minister to one another. Sing to the Lord so that in the body we're encouraged and Christ is honored. Let's eradicate sin. Okay? Father, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray now that 
Holy Spirit would be sovereign over His people. That as the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep in Genesis, likewise, Holy Spirit would hover over this body. As you dwell in us and have marked us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, we ask now that you would also fill us, empower us to minister to one another, that sin would be repented of, that offenses would be let go, that encouragement would be given, faith would be increased, and there would be unity and strength, and that fellowship would be our goal, life together under the Word. Would you do that work now, we pray in Jesus' name.